Okay. Uh, it's been a long time for the discovery class. And maybe we need to go back to chapter one, right? No. If you recall, my last time with you was when we just started the book of Romans. I think I was reminded today that we went through verse 4 or maybe verse 8 or 9 of Romans chapter 8. I really am sorry and I apologize for the fact that there's such a delay and a break in of this chapter because it's such a tremendous chapter. So what I've decided to do tonight, because unfortunately we might have another break again, it all depends on what's going to happen in my surgery. So rather than approach it the way we did previously, we went sort of verse by verse uh, at this time. I want to do a summary or an overview of the entire chapter. There are many major themes, outstanding themes in chapter 8, having to do with the Holy Spirit and the whole order of salvation, the sequence of salvation and all of that. But I want to focus on the theme of eternal security because that's a theme I think that is often overlooked in going through this book. And I believe it is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible that deals with the subject or theme of eternal security. And I believe that's Paul's focus. So we're going to give an overview. Now when we come back, Lord willing, uh, how many weeks it might be, uh, before we resume this class again, I probably will pick up again and go verse by verse because there are many verses that we want to deal with. I'll show you them as I go over the overview. But tonight, what I want to look at is the theme I've called No Condemnation, No Separation. Now look at verse 1 of your Bible in Romans 1, uh, chapter 8. And just read the first chapter, a couple of verses. I won't actually have to read everything. Just read the first opening lines in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Got it, Pastor Aldry? I'll pass the soil. All right, let's stop right there. Notice that statement. Therefore, there is no what? Condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Every word there is important. All right? No, that means nothing. Condemnation, that means freedom from judgment. To those in Christ Jesus, only a particular people. Now, so the chapter opens with this tremendous statement, no condemnation for believers. Now go down to verse, how many verses in that chapter? 33. Read verse 33 for me. That's 30, well then 32 then. Uh, 29? 39. Oh, it's 39 verses. Okay, 39. What's the last verse say? Right, there it is. What they should be able to what? Separate us. See, this is where we get the idea of no condemnation, no separation. The book begins with a statement of no condemnation for believers, 
it ends with a statement of no separation, the love of God for unbelievers. So it has to do with our eternal security in God, in Christ, as a result of our salvation. So that's what we'll be looking at tonight, and I think you'll be very blessed and encouraged as we go through this chapter. But before we get to the closing verses, let's go with an overview. The chapter begins with the glorious truth of no condemnation. It climaxes with the wonderful truth of no separation for those who, because of God's love for them, have been placed in Christ. This is a position they enjoy because of their faith in him as Savior and Lord. They have been justified. That's what Paul has been dealing with up to this point. Justification, declared righteous in the sight of God. But now Paul goes on to explain the permanency and eternal security of the justified, those who have been justified. And that's why it's important to see this connection. The chapter opens with the word therefore, and we're going to see tonight what's that therefore. Therefore, because sometimes we look at that therefore, and we put it someplace where it shouldn't be, or we connect it with something that it shouldn't be. So let me explain that. Paul laid the groundwork for this extended treatise on the believer's eternal security in Christ in the preceding seven chapters where he moved from showing man's condemnation before God because of his association with Adam in chapters 1 to 3. Remember, that's where he asked the question, um, are we lost? Answer that, yes, all are lost, all are guilty. That's chapters 1 to 3. We are condemned because of our connection to Adam, who is our forefather. Then he shows that Christ, the Son of God, who is the last Adam, by his death on the cross of sinners, reversed the effects of the first Adam upon the human uh, race. In other words, the same way Adam was the head of the fallen race, Christ now becomes the head of the saved race or redeemed race. Uh, that's why he is called the last Adam. And then he shows how the faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross, a sinner can be justified or declared absolutely right in the sight of God. <clears throat> That's what he deals with in chapters 4 and 5. So when you look at those chapters, you have a beautiful, a wonderful, a detailed description of why it is necessary for man to be saved and how he was saved. It explains faith. It explains what it means to be connected to Adam and how that has affected us. It's a tremendous book. If you want to understand the gospel, you must, you have to study the book of Romans, and especially these first four chapters, actually five chapters. Any questions there so far? Just gave you an overview. All right. Then in chapter 6 and 7, he shows that because the believer actually shares in and is identified, identified with the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ, that he is forever free from the power of sin and the old life. In a word, the believer is sanctified or set apart in Christ for the glory of God. And Paul does a wonderful job of 
showing how that is done sequentially. Loss, condemned, he tells you why. And he tells you how Christ's uh, uh, work on the cross has saved us from that. He tells us what we are to do to apply it to ourselves. He tells us in verses 6 and 7 that as a result of our faith in Christ, we are identified with everything that happened to Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all of that we are a part of. And so Paul is very clear, very precise. It's a beautiful, beautiful story when you see it in its sequence. Now he says, because of that, you're set apart to serve God. You're set apart to glorify him in your life that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, <coughs> in this magnificent chapter, the apostle brings it all together to show that the believer, because of his position in Christ, true faith in Christ, are eternally, that should be, is eternally safe and secure in him. Eternally safe and secure in him. Now, that's the important position in Christ. And Paul gives us seven different reasons in this chapter for our security. Some of it we looked at before, but not in this context. And we're just going to give the outline. We come back to it later on. In verses 1 through 4, which we covered before, we have a new position. And that position is no condemnation. We have passed out of judgment. We passed out of condemnation, out of death into life. No condemnation because believers in Christ are free from the law of sin and death. We looked at that, remember? You have that in your notes, verses 1 through 4. But that is what is called a positional truth. That position cannot be touched. No matter, now this might sound extreme, but this is by a point of emphasis. No matter what we do, we cannot change our position. We could change our fellowship with God, our practice, you see, but not our position with God. You and I are children. We can never unchildrenize ourselves and become sons of the devil again. You understand what I'm saying? We are forever the children of God. We have a new position that cannot be changed. And we must remember that when we talk about eternal security. That's verses 1 through 4, a new position. Then in verses 5 through 13, we covered most of these, not all of these verses. I think we went to verse 9 or 10. We have a new life. This is life through the Spirit. In these verses, Paul talks to us about the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 5. Read these verses, please. I have scripture I want you to like to read tonight. Read those verses for me. One, let me just now interrupt here. You did this last week, but last time, but I don't do it. Notice, set their minds. So he's talking about a mindset of people who live with a certain mindset. Keep that in mind. All right? He's going to be talking about two different types of people. And what separates them as the way of life is their mindset. Okay, go ahead. On the things of the flesh... Thank you. 
Let's stop there from one now. Notice again these verses, please. Notice what it says. These people with this mindset of the flesh and not the spirit is not subject to the law of God. They do not obey God. Secondly, they're not able to do so. You notice that? They're not able to do so. Notice this. He repeats it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's talking about those who do not know Jesus Christ. It's impossible to please God when it comes to salvation if you do not have the Spirit of God indwelling you. You must have the Spirit of life, the life of Christ, the life of God, the life of the Spirit of God living in you if you're going to please God. These are some powerful statements here. All right? Verse 9. Stop there now. You notice that? You notice these absolute statements? If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, what? Yet there's some people that they teach that you can receive Christ. But if you cannot speak in tongues, you do not have the Spirit. You see? So what they're saying is you can receive Christ and not be a Christian until you receive the Spirit. Well, that is true. You cannot be a spirit until you, not a spirit, you cannot be a Christian until you receive uh, Jesus Christ. You cannot have the spirit. But you don't have to speak in tongues to show that you have the spirit, is the point. All right, go on. Verse 10. Again, these are wonderful, these are, power, these are beautiful verses. Notice how the triune God is mentioned all through here. Notice. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus, who raised Jesus from the dead? God. So he says, if the Holy Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ, that's the Father, from the dead, will also give you life in your mortal body. Through who? The Spirit. So you see the involvement of the triune God in our salvation? Our salvation is the work of the triune God. Now, now, Pastor Aldrin, Pastor Jerry, please don't call me a heretic. But I want to say this emphasis. Sometimes we put too much emphasis on Jesus. Two, the reduction of the importance of the Spirit of God and the Father in our salvation. All right? I thank the Lord there's not jealousy in the, tri in the Trinity, you see. But the triune God is involved. You're going to see even when it came to the death of Christ, the Spirit of God is the one who empowered him to offer himself. Read it, the book of Hebrews. It is through the Spirit of God that he what? Offered himself up. 
How was he raised? Again, it was God through the Spirit of God raising him. You see? So we need to understand that our salvation has to do with the entire Trinity, not just Jesus Christ. Very important for us to understand that. All right, verse 12. Okay, now again, as I say, we probably come back to, to more detailed study of this, but that's for that section now, the fact that we are alive in the Spirit. Then he gives us another reason for our security. In verses 14 through 17, he tells us we have a new relationship. We are the sons of God. Listen to these wonderful verses. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God. Now, please notice again. You know, many times you use the phrase, if God leads me, or God leads this, or God leads that. According to the Bible, if God is not leading you, God the Spirit is not leading you all the time, you're not a child of God. What is the text? For all who are being led, that's an ongoing, continual thing, by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. A mark of a child of God is the fact that he's always being led by the Spirit of God. It's not just a hit and miss, a one-time, periodical, haphazard leaning. It's an ongoing um, state, if you want, being led by the Spirit of God. Notice, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Fear always enslaves. But you have received a spirit of adoption. This is why I want to come back to deal with this passage in detail, because there's so many truths here. You've received a spirit of adoption. Now notice, up top you're talking about we're sons of God. Now he says, adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, what we're going to talk about later on is the difference between the Son of God and being adopted as a Son of God. Do you know the difference? Is there a difference? What is the difference? <laughs> you say yes, but you know, right? But there is an important difference. You see, some people look at when we say we're adopted into the family of God, means, well, we belong to the family of the devil. Now God comes around in his love and he adopts us as one of his child, children, and we just adopt it. Now is adoption, now listen carefully, is an adoption child a real child, a, a, a biological child of the person who adopts him? No, he's a biological child. Right, now, when we become Christians, are we a spiritual, biological child of the devil? Still? No, we are a spiritual, biological child of God. You see? So adoption is not what puts us into the family. It's redemption, it's regeneration that does that, makes us a new creature. Adoption gives us the position of heirship. It makes us adult children where we can claim what belongs, co 
is with Christ. You see, that's what he's talking about. And we'll show that. In other words, Paul is using a Greek cultural uh, thing here to demonstrate what it means for a person to become a child of God and the benefits we have. And the benefits we have is because of what he says we adopted into the family of God. You remember, if you read some of the, even in the book of Galatians, you hear Paul talking about the law was a schoolmaster, law was a school teacher, and so on. In a Greek household, a child was actually led or tutored by someone other than the parent. And they were called schoolmasters, or they were called, um, what's the other word? Pedago- is where we get the word pedagogy from for teaching children. And really, although the child may have been a son, sometimes the servant had more power in the house than the son. Until that son came to a certain age, then that son was given the, the authority to have power just like his father did. You understand what I'm saying? That's what adoption is. All right, look at that later. Abba Father gives an idea of a closer, intimate relationship. All right, uh, it, it's not, uh, it's a sense of, you my real daddy, you my, you my true daddy, I really belong to you, is the idea. What you have is mine, that's the idea. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, this is another truth, boy, needs development. One of the best assurances we have that we are Christian is the Spirit speaking to our spirit. That means, really now, the best person to tell whether you are Christian is who? You. You know whether you're a Christian or not. You know when you tell people, yeah, I'm a Christian, and you know that little feeling now and then if you're not, if you're a hypocrite. That's your spirit testifying to your spirit. And we're going to talk about that, how at times our spirit really can um, communicate with the spirit of other Christians. And I'm not talking about the spirit, like spirit and stuff like that. I, I am talking about that. That, that inner uh, person that when we come into the presence of genuine Christians, we can tell. We, we can tell. Uh, we, we can tell and a person for the most part who is not a Christian is lying when they're being hypocritical. We can normally feel that. We can normally, and the closer you are to the Lord, the closer you become a detector of hypocrites. That's true. Closer you are to the Lord, the more you know of the word, you become a better lie detector. You could tell when other people are lying or when they're hypocrites. Your spirit does, just doesn't, like we say, jive. You see? We come back to that later. Then he says, notice now, this is where airship comes in. If children is also, see the note? He separates it. There's a point that children become heirs. You're not heirs immediately. You might be potential is, but, but you're not really, uh, uh, what do we say, uh, possessing is until you come to a certain age. Is of God and fellow is with Christ. If indeed we suffer, suffer with him, 
so that we may also be glorified with him. And that's another aspect in this, cha- in this chapter that we can talk about, the aspect of suffering that Paul brings in as a part of the Christian life, as a part of the Christian growth. He's going to show that suffering in some form for Christ. I'm not so ca- talking about suffering for our own foolishness, our own sin, but suffering for Christ is a, main, is a real part of our being believers. We're coming back to that as well. That's uh, verse 17. Now, number four, we also have a new hope. This is verses 18 to 25. And that is the hope of glory. We didn't have that hope before. We had a hope of condemnation, dishonor, disgrace. But now we have a hope of glory. Would you read this passage, please? another boy. Now again, like I said, we're coming back to these later on, you know, when I get back, or if I get back, we come into these here. But we're just giving an overview now. Uh, But all of this is important. Notice he says, um, let me go over here. Wait, I'm going the wrong direction. Not only this, in other words, not only true what I've said about these other things, he piles up our blessings, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. See, he isn't finished yet. What Spirit has done for us before, that's only a little token of what he will continue to do. That's all. What is the tenth as a tithe? In the old, what is it supposed to be? First fruits. That's, it isn't all, it's representative is the idea. That's the same thing here. So, we, we've got a lot to look forward to, is what he's trying to say. But now notice, he says, um, oh, I lose this thing. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Notice that phrase? Groan within ourselves. This, this is the idea of anguish, of looking forward to something, feeling a pain, a deep pain, as it were. What causes that? Waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. So you see, we may not be fully adopted yet. 
We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now he describes a part of it. What is the redemption of our body? You see, our body has not yet been redeemed. In fact, what does Paul tell us about our body? It's wasting away. It's decaying. You see, the inner man is supposed to be increasing, improving, right? But the outer man, the flesh in this sense, in this sense, is wasting away. Our body will be redeemed at the rapture. For in hope we have been saved. Now notice this. In hope we have been saved. Now what does that mean? Paul explains it. Hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, we've been saved in something we haven't yet seen. You get, you, you, you get this? Notice now. In hope we have been saved. What is hope? Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what is already seen? In other words, when we got saved, we see what we got saved for. This is where faith comes in. Faith counsel is real even though we haven't seen it. Our redemption. Our redemption is our bodies, our adoption, everything else. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So you see, it's having a deep conviction that what God has promised will actually come about that helps us to persevere in the faith. Why do people give up? Because God let me down. He caused me to lose my house. He caused me to lose my health. He caused me to lose my, oh, he allowed me to lose my wealth. You do that. And so we give up. There's no perseverance, you see. And so you don't go on to perfection. But Paul is talking about a true believer perseveres. That's why in the Reformed faith, you heard about Tulip. Pastor, Pastor all of you want to tell us about Tulip? Grace. Limited atonement. T-U-L-I, irresistible grace. And then P is perseverance of the saints. That's another word for eternal security. In other words, they see eternal security as a saint persevering, going through all the difficulties and still keeping their faith strong in Christ. Perseverance of the saints. All right. A new help. And that help, that should really be a new helper. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our new helper. Read that passage for me, please. This is another tremendous passage of scripture. Now when it says in the same way, what is he talking about? In the same way as what? All right, but what did he talk about in the same way? 
All right, and he was talking about the groaning and the persevering, right? Uh, in other words, there's a, there's a tension here if you want. All right? It says, in the same way, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. So the Spirit himself struggles to help us. In other words, his job isn't an easy one. Just because you have the Spirit living in you, don't you think that he has an easy job teaching and leading you how to serve Christ or how to be Christ-like? He's got a tough job, right? Now, he gives us one area where he helps us. Just one. There's more, but he gives us one. For we do not know how to pray as we should. Now, this, in this passage here, it doesn't say we don't know what to pray for. We do not know how to pray as we should. Some translation says we don't know what to pray for, which is both true. But I think the emphasis really says we really don't know how to pray. Now, isn't it true? Because, you know, disciples ask Jesus what? Teach us how to pray. So in order to pray in a way that pleases Christ, we must be taught how to pray. What this passage is telling us is that the Spirit teaches us. Why? Because that's an area of our weaknesses. I think the Bible, the, the King James calls it our infirmities. We are weak in that area. It's the Spirit of God who comes within, alongside, to help us how to pray. The Spirit himself, notice that now, not us. The Spirit himself intercedes or prays for us. Who is praying for us now in glory? Hmm? Jesus Christ as our advocate, right? But we have somebody praying for us right here on earth all the time in us. Who is that? That's the Holy Spirit. So we have two members of the Godhead praying for us at all times. Now this is a wonderful thing here. He intercedes for us. Now notice now, groanings. Three times we're, we read about groanings in this passage. First, the creation groans for their redemption. Be made free. We groan for our redemption. And now we have the Holy Spirit groaning. Groaning within the believer to teach the believer to pray because the believer is prone not to pray. They don't want to pray. And he prays with groanings too deep for words. Now what does that mean? Hmm? Words cannot express him. So however the Spirit is praying, he isn't praying with words that we can understand anyway. That's why some people, especially in the charismatic and Pentecostal, says talking about praying 
what? In tongues. It has nothing to do with praying in tongues. This all has to do with a deep emotion, has to do with a groaning. And really, you know, if you took, look back in your life somewhere, you'll find that you've experienced this. When there's certain things that happen or came along in your life, it could be a good thing, it could be a bad, it could be when you're rejoicing in the Word. But you want to thank God, you want to pray. You don't know exactly how to do it, you don't know what to do, you don't know. And you just groan, you lay on the floor, you lay in your bed, wherever you are, and you, you just groan. That's the Spirit of God. Now, here is the mysterious thing that happens. I want you to see the mystery and the spirituality of our relationship with God. Notice now. He who searches the heart, who is not? No. In this text, it's God the Father. Notice. He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is. In other words, this groaning within the believer who because of his weakness, his inadequacies in this area, the Spirit of God has to do it for him. God searches the heart and he finds within the inner being of this person the Spirit of God's groanings. And he turns that into the prayer that God the Father receives. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In other words, when the Spirit prays for us, we know that he's praying in the will of God. God has to search our inner beings to get it, but he does it anyway. Now, this is a mysterious passage. This is a passage that carries us into the deeper uh, into the, uh, the the deeper resources, if you want, of our relationship with God. There's something that is going on with the Spirit of God and the Father all the time for us. The Spirit trying to help us to move in the right direction, to have the right mindset for God, to see his leading in our lives, and do encourage us so that we do not grieve the Spirit of God. Wonderful passage. Jude, not, Jude talks about praying in the Spirit. And we're going to pick it up when we come back to study this. Now, verses 28 through 30, a new knowledge. And that knowledge is all things work together for good. All things work together. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these and whom he predestined, he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what we call the order of salvation. This gives us the entire sequence of man's salvation. And when you look at it, you see it is God from beginning to end. Now this is the area that we really see uh, how it's secure our salvation is in Christ. 
And this is what we want to look at, all right? Now, he gives us another assurance in verses 31 to 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Of course, when we say the love of Christ, we mean Christ himself, all right? But this is the powerful message here now concerning eternal security. Now, those were just the points that are dealt with in this chapter. We should look at each one of those points, but as I said, we only, that was only an overview, although we did a little bit more. But now just look, we just can look at points six and seven about a new knowledge and a new assurance. First of all, in verse 28, we have the statement of God's purpose for those whom he saves. And here's his purpose. Read it, please, verse 28. Isn't that a tremendous passage? It's a tremendous one. That's the statement of his purpose. Let us break it down word by word. First, first of all, there's a certainty of the promise. Notice what he says. We what? We know. See, remember this. Christianity is based upon knowledge of God and his revelation. We know. We don't have to guess. We can know. That's why it's so important for us to study the Word of God. Christians have the ability to know more about everything spiritual than the most advanced academic or academic in the world because we have the Spirit of God indwelling us. He teaches us. We don't need human teachers when you get right down to it because he teaches us. He is, the anoint he is our anointing, John tells us, and he teaches us truth from error and all that to determine. We know. What is it that he goes on? Here's the comprehensiveness of the things we know. What is it? We know some things. No, all things. See that? We know all things. Now that's not boastful or arrogant. This is truth. We know, then he goes on. We have the per controller. Now he's talking about God's purpose now. We know all things related to God's purpose is the idea. It don't mean that we know all things about biology and, and, and uh, history and all of that. He's talking about all things that has to do with his purpose. We know all things. Now, who is the one who controls? God. God works. We know that God works all things. See? It is the one person that we have an intimate relationship with, God. We know that it is God who works. And notice, he's active. He's not passive. See? He's involved. Now notice this. The goal is good. God works all things for our good. Now study the meaning of that word good too. It has the idea of it's complete, it's whole. Alright? It's for our benefit. See? 
Like prophet says, he does not have, that he has good things planned for us. You see? That's the goal. What is good for us? Who are the subjects of this purpose? Those who love him. Regardless to what you want to say, God's love is biased. God's plan, God's purpose is biased. It's bent toward those who love him. Now, we don't like to say things like that because we think we are denying the character of God. But the scriptures are clear. God's purpose for good has to do with those who love him. And not all people love God, true or false. But not only that, number six, the method. Who have been called, that's how we get to know him. That's how we get to be loved of him. To be called of him. He calls us. That's a part of his love. He calls us. That's a part of his working in our lives. He calls us. Seven. And the purpose? According to whose purpose? His purpose. Not our purpose, but his purpose. We know that all things work together for good to those who love him, who have been called have been called, past tense. This is something he did long ago, bringing it into being, action now, according to his purpose. In other words, God called us to accomplish a purpose he has for us. He didn't call us and say, all right, I got you, let me see what I can do with you. God called you, he called me, because he has a purpose for you, and he has a purpose for me. In Ephesians 2, we are God's workmanship. Why? Created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. Now what he's telling us, these good works have been pre-planned by God. And he said, now I want Patrice to do this. I want, what's your name? Terry, that's what I want to say in the first place, but I forgot. I want Terry to do this. I want Kathy to do this. I want Tommy to do this. I want Beth. I want her, and I'm going to call her to do it. See, this is why, again, you've got to really understand the nature of our being called as Christians. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are not to live unto ourselves, but we are to live, what? For the one who loved us and gave himself for us. That's why we're here, to accomplish the purpose of God. The only purpose for us being on earth is to accomplish the purpose of God. And that's to glorify Him. If we're failing in that area, we have failed. And if our entire life is not directed towards that, we've really got to check up and see whether or not we've been called, or are we calling ourselves. But let's go on. He gives us the steps in this process, which is 29 through 30. Notice it now. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed 
Now notice that, that word conformed is so important. By the way, where is, when is the period of conformity for the believer to be like Christ? Huh? Right. Started when? From the time we got saved until we redeemed. That's the period of conformity. That's what God is doing, conforming us. He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. See, that's it. He's conforming us to be like Christ. That's why I always say, if you cannot look at your life and, and say, I am more Christ-like in this era of my life than I was yesterday or last week, then you ask yourself, are you being conformed to the world? Or are you being conformed to Christ? Now, to be conformed to Christ, you have to be transformed in the renewing of your mind. That's where knowing God comes into place. That's where knowing the Word comes into place. Conformed to the likeness of His Son. Why? In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, notice this now. Our conformity to Jesus Christ is connected to Jesus being the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean? Who's our big brother? Who's our big brother? Jesus Christ. And what is God, what is God saying us to us? Be like your big brother. Be like your big brother. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What a glorious passage this is. And let's look at each, just let's look at these steps. Step one. God foreknew us. This word has the idea of knowing in advance with favor. Now please note this. Most people define foreknowledge only as knowing in advance. But here, the word is knowing in advance with favor, with approval. In other words, you favor someone in advance. You love someone in advance. The emphasis is on a personal loving knowledge of someone as the basis for establishing a relationship with them. It has nothing to do with knowing what those persons would do or would not do. That was not the basis of God's action. God chose to love whom he chose to choose. Foreknowledge simply states that God chose certain people whom he loved as the objects of his divine purpose. It has nothing to do with what they do, but with what he does. Now, a word that is closely related to the foreknowledge is election. But election is a little bit more rigid word. It's the idea of picking out without emotion. Right? But we'll deal with that at another time. So the, the point here is, though, it is God who originated our salvation, not us. Our salvation began in God, not in us. Step two. God predestined those whom he foreknew. He predestined those whom he foreknew. Now let's go just closely. He predestined, he predestined those whom he knew to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Notice carefully now. 
because this will help you to understand these theological concerns or concepts. Paul states that the end purpose before Paul states the end purpose before he, he cites the third step in the process. Predestination has to do with a process of events, whereas foreknowledge and election has to do with people. In other words, when you're trying to define the difference between foreknowledge and predestination, think about it like this. Foreknowledge has to do with people. Predestination has to do with things, those people who are foreknown, uh, um, the, the things they were supposed to do. Foreknowledge, people. Predestination, events are supposed to do. You got it? People are predestined to do or experience certain events as planned by God. That's the idea. Clear? Clear? All right. Step three. God called those he predestined. This is what theologians call an effective call. In other words, now notice this. God's call of those whom he chose is always effective. This is where we get the I in tulip. Irresistible um, no, it's irresistible call, I think. And what's the other word? I'm getting for some. Irresistible grace. It might be irresistible grace. T-L-I-P-L, limited atonement. Yeah, irresistible grace. What I mean here is once the call is given to the elect, it's irresistible. You cannot reject it. In other words, the call of God to the foreknown is a call that accomplishes what he intends. This is not the case where we say some are called but few are chosen. In this context, for the purpose of God, all who are chosen to be in that purpose are called and they respond. The choosing comes first, the calling affects that choosing that should be, not calling. Let me give you an illustration of this in First Peter 1. Read that passage for me, please. What is that passage saying in relation to what we're learning now? What does that say to you? Look at the sequence. You're talking about these people. To those who are what? Chosen. All right? Chosen how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The choice was based on the foreknowledge. 
Now, by the, now still talking about the call, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So the Spirit now is seen as sanctifying those whom God has foreknown to be called. What does sanctify mean? To set apart. So I want you to see what is happening here. The Spirit of God sets apart, in a sense, he works in the life, the everyday life of the individuals God has foreknown to be called into his purpose. He arranges the life of the individual called by God to do what? To obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. In other words, however you got to be where you were, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, all of those things involved in getting you done there, getting there was done by the Spirit of God, setting you apart for that purpose, to obey. You might think, well, you know, I only go in here because this person bothered me. I remember Sidney Burris um, uh, and Agatha, when I was inviting them to go to the crusade meeting, uh, Agatha went readily. She got saved, but Sidney wouldn't go. And he always got mad. Man, you bugging me, you bugging me. One time he said, oh, I only go on just to get rid of you. Sidney Bars went that night, he got saved. Now looking back at it, he said, boy, you see, you forced him to go. You go, no, 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 no. That was the Spirit of God working all of those things out in that way so Sidney Bars could be there in that tent at that time. Same with me going away to Long Island, looking for pretty girls, and I find on that time. But all going all over there in a little place. Why? Right here. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled by his blood. That's how God affects his plan of salvation. You understand what I'm saying? God has a plan for you. He called you to do that plan. And he works everything in your life to bring it about. That's what's happening here. What do you say to that? Amen. And you all got a hall of mind. Step four, God justified those whom he called, this step four. In other words, he declared that those who were foreknown, predestined, and called were declared by him to be free from any and every cause that would hinder communion and fellowship with him. God says, since I have foreknown you, I have predestined you, I have called you, and everything, now you are straight. You stand before me as set apart for my purpose. Notice now, this is the end purpose of the plan. Those whom he justified, he what? He glorified. Now notice, it's already done. Each of these actions by God, foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying, are all, is what called in the Greek, an aorist tense. It means it's a completed action. In other words, the point is this. This means that each of the events are seen as have already taken place. They are complete and therefore certain and absolute. In other words, as far as God is concerned, every person he has foreordained, predestined, called, and justified have already been glorified. In God's sight, we are already like Christ. We are already seated with him in the heavenlies. We are hid with Christ in God, or in God, in Christ. 
Do you understand that? God sees you and me right now as genuine believers, as glorified. Now, we might not look to glorify, but in God's sight, we are. See, that's the absolute sense here. This is why when you're talking about eternal security, you cannot look at it and say, okay, God looks at you, it's glorified, and then tomorrow because you do something wrong, okay, God doesn't see it's glorified anymore. It can't happen like that. This is absolute. Paul is motivated to ask several questions, most of which are really rhetorical in nature. In other words, when you ask him, you get the answer. It's a statement in a question form. What then shall we say in response to this? In other words, can there possibly be any other kind of response? Paul is saying no. There cannot be any other response than what I've just said. Who could dare question what God has done? He's done these tremendous things. Who can question that? Not only that, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, is there anyone who would be so foolish to stand against God? Of course not. Besides, who is the judge? He is. If he is on your side, you've got it made in the shade, as we say. That's what he's saying. Listen, you've got God on your side. Nobody else matters. Then he asks another question. He, or he makes a statement, and this is another fantastic passage of scripture. He who did not spare his own son. Now, please, now, when you read this verse, you really got to read this with reverence. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's a sacrificial term. Gave up. Sacrifice. He didn't spare him but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, listen, he gave the best. Why wouldn't he give the least? If God did what was the most difficult thing for him to do, will he fail in doing the lesser thing of keeping us? This is what is called an argument from the greater to the lesser. You see? If a man is willing to give somebody a million dollars, why should he not give somebody a cent, a penny, is the idea. 33. Who will dare to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Question, of course, is no one in his right mind. Why? Because it is God who justifies. This is the one who makes, who, 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 uh, who makes the declaration that he's all right. One stands fit in my sight. And I put it here. And once the acquitter acquits, the acquittee is acquitted. I like that phrase, isn't that guy? Once the acquitter acquits, the acquittee is acquitted. Who is he that condemns? This means, who can, condem who can condemn those whom God through Christ has justified? No one. Why? Because it is Jesus who died. More than that, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. This is what Christ did. He died, he was raised, he's interceding at God's right hand. Who can fight against that? I want you to see what he, Paul is doing. He's bringing in the character of God, he's bringing in the work of God, he's bringing in the character of Christ, he's bringing in the work of Jesus Christ as well. He's saying all of these things are done by God who loves so much, and Christ who sacrificed so much. The victor, Christ, now sits triumphantly as our defender against the false accusations of the devil. 
The very fact that he sits at God's right hand shows that God has accepted his work on Calvary. It is finished. The price has been paid, and we are free. And more than that, we are secure. That's the message of Romans 8. That's the message of Resurrection Day. Notice carefully. Now, this is the important thing. This is what it all comes to right here. The death, resurrection, glorification, and present high priestly ministry in heaven are all guarantees of the eternal security of the believer. Let me repeat that. I want you to get this. The death, resurrection, glorification, high priestly ministry of Christ in heaven are all guarantees of the eternal security of the believer. Listen carefully to this statement. For anyone, none of that, for one who has been saved to be lost again would mean that every aspect of the past and present ministry of Christ would have to be made of none effect. The death of Christ means nothing. The resurrection of Christ means nothing. The ascension of Christ means nothing. His intercession in heaven means nothing. If you could be saved and lost, those things mean nothing. That's why Paul is so forceful here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice, separation from God is the issue. And the love of Christ that motivated him to put it in place, the plan of salvation, is the test. If that can be broken, then separation can take place and his entire redemptive work could be overturned. But the question is, is such a thing possible? Can it actually happen? That's the big question. Paul answers it. Notice what he says. Please read this and read it with gusto. Notice what he says. Now notice the notes I have here. He says he's convinced that neither death nor life, that means every sphere of existence. We only know two spheres of existence, either life or death. Neither angels nor demons, that's angelic powers. Neither the present nor the future, that's dimensions of time. Nor any power of any kind, that has to do with authority. Neither height nor death, that's dimensions of space. Nor anything else in all creation, absolute here, Paul, I don't care where you look. Nothing, no one, anytime, anywhere, in any dimension, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that powerful? And yet there are people who teach you can be lost and saved. The Father's love is completely and totally poured out toward and manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, who in turn poured out that love for those who trust him as Savior and Lord. And the same way we are in the double grip of both the Father's and the Son's hand, so are we engulfed in their double love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God or the love 
of Christ. Now notice this. This is it. Our security is permanent and eternal because it depends upon the person and entire redemptive work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It does not depend upon you or me. You get it? For the true believer to lose his or her salvation, the entire Godhead will have to be dethroned, vanquished, and prove not to be God, and everything they have ever done to be being done in vain. My friends, listen, when you see it all, one cannot ask for a more secure salvation than the one we have in Jesus Christ. Now, if you were here, if there's any place that the word sila should be said, is right there. 